Let's pray as we consider this text. You may be seated. Our Father, we come to this text uh, again two weeks in a row where we face difficult, um, difficult passages. Uh, and it shouldn't surprise us. They're passages that um, are honest about sin. And sin is difficult. Sin is awkward. Sin is something we like to kind of sweep under the rug. But you've not done that. You've, the, the scriptures here are so honest about sin. It's not, you know, hagiography of, about these characters in, in the Bible, but it's, it's an honest reckoning with them, these characters, um, which underscores your greatness, your goodness, your mercy, your patience. We pray that you would help by your spirit to teach us more about you, that we may know you more deeply, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So what's your, what's your motivation in life? I think of the Sprite commercial from like 15 or 20 years ago. What's, your, what's my motivation? What's your motivation? There was a, if you grew up in the 80s, there was a, an ad that you probably remember, and it went like this. It was an egg. It said, this is your brain. And then the egg would fall onto a frying pan and sizzle. It said, this is your brain on drugs. And I, I would venture to say anybody that lived in the 80s remembers that commercial. It was very memorable. Right? It was tapping into our fears. And for that reason, it was effective. Right? Fear, fear is a powerful motivator. We remember that. We, maybe we even avoided drugs because of that commercial. Um, but all sorts of things are trying to manipulate and motivate us through fear. Think, think of all the advertisements that come your way. Like, use this deodorant because you don't want to smell. Smelly people don't have friends. Smelly people can't sustain relationships. You don't want it to be smelly. Buy our deodorant. Or businesses will motivate their employees. Like we're, the competitions, they're getting out ahead of us. We got we to hit our numbers if we don't hit our numbers, we're going to have to do some, some layoffs, some cuts. Or athletics, right? The high school down the street. I know they're working harder than you guys right now. Somebody's going to win a state championship. It's not going to be you guys based on how you're working right now in the offseason, right? Fear. fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. Now, and when we think about religion and church, like Christianity, spirituality, we think like, Fear is the M.O. of churches in religion. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that's how we work, right? Think about the passage last week. God's judgment, obliterating a wicked town. And, you know, you think, well, okay, so I guess that, that, was, that happened. And we read that. So maybe the, the way that I'm supposed to live is like, get in line with God so that doesn't happen to you. You don't, get a, you don't turn into a pillar of salt as, as Lot's wife did last week. Fear is an effective motivator, but it's not the most effective motivator. It's not, even, it's, it's not even how the Christian life is to be motivated. Not at all. And I want to give you just a sampling to, to make that point. Look, look, look at Romans, well, you don't have to look at it, but just listen. Romans 12, you can turn there if you like. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, how, how is the Christian to live his life faithfully to God? He says, I appeal to you, 
Paul, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Paul has spent 11 chapters in the book of Romans explaining God's work in the gospel of Jesus and how God loves sinners. And he says, I appeal to you on the basis of all of that, not on the basis of judgment, because there's no condemnation for you now in Christ. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Offer your lives as living sacrifices. Let's take another example. Ephesians. There's a prayer pivot in the book of Ephesians. You may have remembered because we went through the book of Ephesians uh, not too long ago. In the book of Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters explaining the good news of what God has done in the gospel. And then he offers a prayer before he tells people, Christians how to live. He offers a prayer. And what does he say in that prayer? Dear Lord, I, I pray that they would just know, Lord, that you're watching. That you're waiting for them to misstep. That, that your judgment's coming so that they fall in line. Is that what he prays? No. He says, I pray, church, that you would be rooted and grounded in the boundless love of God. In Christ, it knows no height, no depth. I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's his motivation for living the Christian life. And then he spends the next three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, explaining how we're to live. Let's go over to Peter real quickly. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, he's, he speaks, Peter speaks of the qualities that are to mark a Christian. He says you're to be marked by virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and and on and on and on. He says if if those qualities are lacking in your life, is it because we've forgotten God's judgment? He's going to get us now because you're lacking these qualities? Is that what he says? No, he says, and and, and you're going to be pummeled for forgetting those things? Is that what Peter says? He says, no, you've forgotten the mercies of God to you, verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 1. And we've barely scratched the surface, but I, I hope I've illustrated the point. That the Christian life is not motivated by fear of a looming judgment of God. It's motivated by God's love towards sinners and God's goodness. That's the motivation. That's my motivation. Back to the question. What's your motivation? It's the love of God in Christ. Now, here's the thing, though. Fear is a pretty good motivator. Don't you think? I mean, looming deadline, presentation, like you start, you get cracking when when you got fear in your soul. This past week, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I sometimes I struggle with sleeping. And this past week was one of those weeks where I'm up every morning, bright and early, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., can't go back to sleep. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. And guess what? Guess what I'm doing at 3 and 4 a.m. in the morning? I'm just plugging away, working, all kinds of... I'm incredibly productive at 3 a.m. in the morning. Like, fear is, 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 is getting some, some good productivity out of me. But long term, you crash and burn with that approach. It's not, it's not a way to live. It's not the way to live the Christian life, at least. Okay. 
Fear leads to crash and burn. And I would, I would suggest to you that the reason fear seems like such a great motivation for us as Christians and as people is because we haven't really gotten the love of God for us in Christ. Because the New Testament says that's the motivator. And to the degree that it feels like it's kind of lackluster, it's not, the problem is not God's love. The problem is our perception and understanding of it, our grasp of it. Okay? So, that's our motivation. Now, to the story at hand. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. And Abraham, as we've seen, has been walking by faith. He's stumbled. He's failed big time at moments. But nonetheless, he's walking by faith. Lot, on the other hand, has been walking by sight. You remember when they parted ways back in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot? They were, they'd both been blessed by God. And they have these huge herds and, and wealth. And the problem is now they can't even coexist together because the land, the scarcity of the land doesn't support their, their fat herds. And so they decide to split. And Abraham says to his younger nephew, he says, my brother, generous turn. He doesn't say, hey, little guy, little nephew. You know, I remember you when you were just barely crawling. He says, my brother, look, as far as you can see, you, you take whatever land you want, and I'll go the other way. You got dibs. And Lot looks around, and, and the text says that he sees what appears to him to be like a paradise. It's the city of Sodom. It's paradise. It's, a bi- it's big time. And so Lot makes his way, and over the course of several chapters, Lot settles in, and that, light, that walking by sight leads to doom and destruction for Lot. He escapes, but, but narrowly. Now, why would a person walk by sight? Here's why. Fear. Fear is why we, walk, we would want to walk by sight. Fear. Self-preservation. Right? We, we fear something, some sort of outcome, and so we want to take control of our lives. And so we latch on to what we can see, what we can control, a path that we can understand. And so we lean into that. And here's the irony of that. If you live your life walking by sight, living by what you can see, and and that life, by the way, again, it's it's driven by fear, desire to control the situation. What it leads to is more fear and anxiety. So it's driven by fear. That's the motor of living a life by walking by sight. And it creates fear. Because we're not built to control our lives. There's going to be something that comes into your life that is outside of your control. Sooner or later. Even in this modern world where we control so much. Where a drought doesn't mean anything. Because grocery store aisles are always full of stuff. I mean, we, never, there's no, we seem to have so much control. But at some point, even now, in your life, there will be a situation that you can't control. And what happens in that moment? The fruits of belief and walking by faith are peace and joy. The fruits of unbelief, the fruits of walking by sight, are fear and anxiety. And this is where things have led for Lot. This is the very end of Lot's story in the Bible. And we see Lot being, fearfully being driven to the hills. His daughters, fearful, out of fear, hatching this perverse plan and executing the plan. And we see uh, this fear of Lot that's been transmitted down to his daughters also being transmitted to subsequent generations of Lot. 
The Moabites and Ammonites are going to be a fearful people for, for generations, hundreds and thousands of years. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Lot's fears, his daughter's fears, and his progeny's fears. So his, the generations that come, his progeny's fears. So um, those are the three points, Lot's fears, daughter's fears, and his progeny's fears. And uh, we'll begin with Lot's fears. Lot, and by the way, that is Lot's legacy, his fear. And it's, it's going to trickle down. Okay, so let's look at verse 30. Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. Why did he go up to the hills? He was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now why, why is Lot, it says Lot's afraid. That's what moves him out of Zoar, this little city. Why is, why is Lot afraid? I don't know. Text doesn't say. Just says he's afraid. There's some possibilities. You remember what the remember last week in the passage last week? The angels are like, Lot, get out of here. Escape. This thing, we're, we're gonna bring judgment. Like, you gotta get out. And 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 they do, and he gets out and they say, Go to the hills. And you remember what Lot says? If, if you have it open, look at verse 18. Like, remember the urgency of the moment. This, Lot, Sodom's about to be destroyed. And Lot says to them, Oh, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. Verse 19. And you've shown me such great kindness in saving my life and all. I really appreciate that. But I, I can't escape to the hills. I'm, I'm cosmopolitan. Like, I'm a man of the city. My, my uncle Abraham, he's country bumpkin, and he does well in the hills, but not me. So, lest this disaster overtake me and I die. Look, there's a little city over there. It's near enough to flee to, and it's, it's just a little one. It's not, it's not like Sodom. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? It's audacious, isn't it, that Lot would say that? And he lives there. And maybe, just maybe, Lot is seeing the same destiny in Zoar that he saw in, that, that happened in Sodom. That Zoar is wicked as well. And maybe he, he realizes his fate is going to be the same. So he leaves. A more optimistic interpretation of Lot's fear is that maybe the command of the angels is grating against his soul, that he was told by them to go to the hills, and he refused to go, and he's going to Zoar, and maybe he's feeling this, this great this discord in his soul. And so he says, he thinks to himself, we got to get out of here. We're going to the hills, just like the angels commanded. Now, Abraham, on the other hand, is walking with God, and like we said, he's fa- I don't want to present Abraham as perfect. He's not. He's far from perfect. But he is walking with God. And he keeps establishing these altars to the Lord where he, where he worships the Lord. And there's no sign of that in Lot's life. Lot is walking by sight. And consequently, he's afraid. Like we said, it's what unbelief does. It makes us afraid. And sometimes the fear is very easy to pinpoint. I've got a meeting with my boss. He just called it this morning. He said, meet in my office in an hour. I'm afraid. I'm anxious about that meeting. I don't know what, what he wants to talk about. That's easy to pinpoint. Sometimes it's, more, it's just a vague, nebulous sense of fear, anxiety. I don't even know why. I'm just afraid. 
It's unspecified. It's vague. It's like Lot here. It's unspecified. There's no, there's no specification for Lot's fear. And this is what walking by sight does. It just makes us fearful. We don't even know why. He's afraid. And may, maybe you have unsettled, this unsettled sense in your heart. You're fearful and you don't know what it is. It's like kind of this low-level anxiety that it just kind of lingers. It's a fruit of unbelief. It's a fruit of unbelief in your heart. Because if we knew how securely situated we were in God's care, we wouldn't fear. We would not fear. And we, let me say this, we all have pockets of unbelief in our heart. And if your soul grates against you, if you have fear and anxiety in your soul, let me ask you, listen to that. Listen to that fear. And and see if it doesn't point to something. You know, it's like pain. If you have a pain in your body, it's probably saying there's something that needs to be checked out. Something is wrong, and you need to investigate and spend time and money going to doctors and get MRIs and all those sorts of things to figure out what the problem is. If you've got this lingering fear and anxiety in your heart, investigate that. C.S. Lewis has said that pain insists upon being attended to. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Our pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Like, listen, listen to the pain in your heart, the fear in your heart, because it may be pointing to unbelief. And don't hide it, express it, lift it up to God. Say, Lord, as the person in the New Testament said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, whatever the case on Lot's fear, he is afraid and his fear drives him to the hills. And that fear of Lot trickles down to his daughters, which brings us to our second point. The daughters are afraid. Look at verse 31. The oldest daughter said to her sister, our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. They're they're fearful. And it's understandable that they would be fearful. If you're a single woman, in, in the, if, you're, if you're in the ancient world, it's a brutal world and your life is at risk. If you're, if you're a man, a single and alone man in the ancient world, that's risky business. And, and, and it's even more so if you are um, a woman in the ancient world on her own. And Lot is old, that's what she says. And, and, and what... By that, I believe what she's, what she's saying is, our father's too old to remarry. Marriage is out of the cards for him. So there's no future for us. There's no offspring that's going to come and, into our lives so that we can gain a bit of security in this moment. We are alone, and we're in a cave, and we've got to do something. It's an understandable fear. Now, look, uh, let me say this too. We've said it so many times. Offspring in this world was like security. It was something that helped deal with your fears of being alone. Because you could build up a tribe, a people, a kin, that could then kind of make it through. Pooling resources of of the people together to get a handle on things. And they don't have that. So they're afraid. And so they think, we got to do something about this. Look at what they do. Verse 32. Come, 
Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Now, the beginning of verse 32 is identical to um, the, the opening of, of Babel, the Babel story. Remember Genesis chapter 11? I believe it's uh, verse 3. The people say, come, let us deal with our fear by building a tower, engineering a tower up to the heavens so that we can deal with our fear. And here's, here's Lot's daughter, his oldest daughter, saying, come to, his sister, to her sister. Let us, let us do this wicked thing, this perverse thing. This sort of makes us all just sort of squeamish inside so that we might preserve offspring. Her fear is driving her to engineer a deplorable plan so that she can have offspring. And the plan is to get the father drunk, to sleep with her father, so that she might have offspring with her father and the younger sister to do the same. And they do. And poor, pitiful, sad Lot. He has lost everything. He's lost his wealth. Remember Genesis 13? He was, he was stinking rich. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his home. He's lost his wife. He's lost his family. He lost his word. Remember his sons-in-laws laughing at him? And now he loses his rights to his own body. He's totally oblivious to what's taking place. And in one sense, that's you know, to his credit that he's totally oblivious. Bruce Waltke puts it like this. Lot offers his daughters to be known by gang rapists. That was last week. Now he does not know his daughters even as he impregnates them. Now contrast this scheme in a cave with Abraham and Sarah. They've they've been far from perfect. But they have been patiently waiting, trusting on the Lord's provision to provide offspring. To provide a people. And they get pregnant. The, the sisters get pregnant. And they birth two nations. The Moabites. And the Ammonites. And what we're going to see. Uh, as we consider these two tribes. Is that their progeny. Their children and their children. And their children's children. And on and on and on. They are entangled in fear. For, for hundreds of years. And that brings us to the third point, the progeny sphere. You know what the spirituality is? The preferred spirituality and religion of those who walk by sight is? Idolatry. Right? It makes sense. It's a God you can see. How perfect is that for somebody that walks by faith? You could whittle up a little God that you can then see and bow before and hand things to as offerings and, and engage with. And the, the, the Moabites... And the Ammonites are all in on idolatry as the scriptures unfold. All in. Judges 10, verse 6. Their idolatry is a constant source of temptation for for God's people, for Abraham's children. The Moabites, the Ammonites. Constant problem of entanglement for Israel. Not just idolatry, but perverse, perverse actions. Numbers 25 says that the men of Israel keep whoring themselves after the Moabite women and engaging in, in, in uh, sinful worship towards the Moabite gods and goddesses. 
Now, why is idolatry so attractive? Because if you're walking by sight, you want a God that you can see and control. That's, that, that's the attraction of, of an idol. It's a God you can control. It's a God made after your own image who operates like you operate. Isn't that attractive? How do you operate? Well, if I help you know, somebody um, with something, then they, they can help me. So maybe the little God that I worship, if I give him that God a, you know, a grain offering, he'll, he'll scratch my, I scratch his back, he'll scratch my back. He'll give me grain. He'll bring the rains and, 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 and so that my, water, my fields are watered and I have food. Or whatever it may be. That's, that's, what, that's what's attractive about idols is they're gods that we make and we, ha- we, we can leverage control over them. But here's the thing. It works the other way around. They begin to control us, these idols. They be- we control them and then in time they control us. You know, and, 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 and they, they control us with fear. They drive, they drive us to take more extreme action. Think, think about this. What if, what if you give the idol a little piece of grain to bring rain so that you have lots of grain, more grain to give the idol, but the idol doesn't bring the rains? What happens then? Well, you have to up the ante, right? Sacrifice a cow. And you keep upping the ante. Right? They keep demanding more. If they don't deliver, then they demand more. And we, we get a wonderful picture of this in Eli- when Elijah, the prophet, is, at, is calling the prophets of Baal to bring down fire from heaven to light the altar. And they, they start doing these incantations towards, their, to the, towards the Baals and calling the Baals down. And the Baals don't respond. And remember what they start doing? They start dancing. And the gods still don't respond. You remember what they start doing after they start dancing? They start cutting themselves, like, gods, respond, respond. The pressure's on. All the people are watching. Do something, Baal. And that's how idolatry works. It begins, we start doing a little dance, and then we, and then we start in, in doing harm to ourselves. I mean, it would be very easy for us to look at that and say, you know, these silly primitives and they're idols, but we're the same. We have... Idols of the heart that the, spirit, the scriptures speak of. Tim Keller has said an idol is, is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So let's take an example. Let's say that you have made an idol out of um, your physical body appearance. Your, your, your physical appearance. And it starts, you know, innocent enough. It starts, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of begin watching what I eat. And I'm going to work out a couple times a week. Just kind of get in shape. And, and, and the idols out there are all these perfectly sculpted images of people out there. They don't, and, the, and the image doesn't even line up with the reality of the person who's in the image. Because it's airbrushed and it's all lighting's all manipulated to make it look perfect. And so we're, we're working towards these gods, towards these physical fitness gods. And we start off, you know, simple enough, like good healthy habits. But we don't see the response, the result. And so what do we do? Well, we, we really cut back on our food. Or we really up our workout intervals. And so now we're, 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 we're starving ourselves eventually. We're starving ourselves and we're hurting it. We're working out like six times a week for hours. I mean, this is where it leads. 
It begins causing harm for us. And that's how these idols work. At first, they demand a dance. And then they ask that we start cutting ourselves. They start harming us. And here, here's the point of all. And it, well, let me say this, too. What is your idol? What idols do you have in your heart? Keller gives a great diagnostic. He says, what do you think about when there's nothing else to think about? What do you daydream about, fantasize about? Career success, marriage and children. Where do you go? Do you go to thoughts about the wonderful mercies of God? Or do you go to something else? What's your checkbook look like? Or your bank statements? Where are you spending your money? That might be a good clue to what, you, what, what has, has become an idol in your life. So, but here's the point. A sense of unsettledness, fear, and anxiety with some aspect of our life. It may be drought. It may be weight gain. It may be infertility. It creates a fear in us. And that fear drives us to want to control that area of our life. And when that fear is not assuaged by that effort to control it through kind of false worship, through idolatry, and it never is, the fear is never satisfied because idols create more fear. They demand more. They just demand. That's all they do. They demand and they never give. They take and they take. And then we raise the stakes. So we're, we're not just taking a diet. We're now... St- bulimic or we're not just working out we're now like killing ourselves working out and just like the prophets of Baal begin with dance and end up cutting themselves you know what the Ammonites and Moabites do in their idol worship where it leads them they eventually engage in child sacrifice they they sacrifice their babies to the gods to Molech that's where it leads for them And that's what it does. It's not because they didn't love their kids. It's because their kids were everything. Think about how much attention is given to offspring in these chapters of Genesis. This is everything in the ancient world. And that's the point. It was their way of saying, I'm giving you everything. Give me something back. That's what child sacrifice led to. So here's, here's the point. These idols of the Ammonites, the Moabites, Lot's children, they were born out of fear and a desire to control, and they create more fear. So let me ask you, as we bring this to a close, are you in a cycle of fear? Lot was, as we see here in this verse. And it trickled down to his daughters, and it trickled down to generations to come. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Lot's children struggled with fear. And the reason they were fearful The reason they were anxious is because of unbelief in the Lord. Michael Reeves says this, Anxiety grows best in the soil of unbelief. Anxiety withers in contact with faith. It withers. And here comes the twist. You ready for this? How do you fight fear and anxiety? With the fear of the Lord. That's how you do it. You fear the Lord. So you fight fear with fear, fear of the Lord. Listen to what Michael Reeves says. Faith is fertilized by the fear of the Lord, by the fear of God. And that's Abraham. 
Abraham's got a lot to be afraid of, and no doubt he was. No doubt there were sleepless nights for Abraham. But he's fearing the Lord. He's, he's walking with the Lord. He's walking in fellowship. If you don't want fear and anxiety that unbelief and walking by sight creates, you turn in faith to the fear of the Lord. Well, what does the fear of the Lord mean? It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Michael Reeves has written a, a good book called um, Rejoice and Tremble. And it's about fear. It's about fear of the Lord. He's, he's one of my favorite authors. Uh, definitely my favorite contemporary author. It's great. I, I encourage you to read it. Rejoice and Tremble. That's the name of the book. But it's on the fear of the Lord. And he points out from the prophet uh, Jeremiah some interesting words. Jeremiah in chapter 33 verses 8 through 9 says this. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And the city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. This is the key verse. They shall fear and tremble. Why? Why should we fear and tremble? It says because. Because my judgment is coming their way. Because I'm holy and righteous and I'm going to get them. No, they shall fear and tremble because, listen to this, of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for them. Do you hear that? The fear of the Lord is based in the Lord's goodness to his people. And we could go, we could go to other verses that say the same thing. We fear and tremble because God is good. That his goodness leads us to fear and tremble before the Lord. That fear draws us in. There is a fear of the Lord that drives us away from God. But that's not the fear of his people. The fear of his people draws us to the Lord. And you, could, you might say it's sort of like awe. That doesn't fully capture it, but I think it's helpful to think about. That the fear of the Lord is like the awe that we feel if you've been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, you, you're there and your eyeballs are, it's like dizzying to even look at because there's so much to take in. You can hardly handle it and it's, it's scary. You, on the railing, you look down and it's deep. What if you fell? But at the same time, you're kind of drawn to it. Like you kind of want to lean in to it because of the beauty and the, the grandeur of it. Or the, or the Niagara Falls, the same thing. You know, the thunderous water and just the, the strength of it. You lean over the railing, you want to hear it, you, you, you're like, whoa, what if we got close? But, oh, this, I want to get closer. And that's, that's a little bit what we're talking about here. But it's his goodness that creates the fear of the Lord. That's why we fear the Lord, because of his goodness. His kindness to us is so shocking, it stirs up fear in our hearts. Now, you may be wondering about God's goodness to you. Wondering if God can really love you. Right? We said the script, the, the key point of the script of our lives in Christ is the, the, the forgiveness of, that Christ forgives sinners. And we can often agree to that kind of in the abstract. 
And we think, yeah, I bet Christ has forgiven every one of you, but he hasn't forgiven me because, you know, you guys don't know, you guys don't know half, half the story for me. And we wonder, does he really love me after all that I've done? Well, what I want you to see here is that your life, your marriage, your situation, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but it is, it is not beyond repair. Not at all. And it is so encouraging to me that God is at work in this deplorable mess. In this cave, God is working out his salvific purposes. Can you believe that? Do you know that, that, that Lot's, one of Lot's great, 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 great granddaughters was a Moabite woman named Ruth who married Boaz. They had a little boy named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David, who became king of Israel. And out of David's line came the son of David, Jesus, the Christ. God is working out his salvific purposes in the mess of this cave, in this perverse, deplorable situation. You see, Jesus was plunged into the thick of our fallen world, and we don't like that. You know, Max Lucado has a wonderful quote where he talks about just the, the muck and mire of the world that Christ came into. And he says, we've got to let him into the mess of our world. Because only if we let him in, can he pull us out. And that's what he came to do. He's pulling us out. That he came bearing our sins on a cross. So that we might get his righteousness. And all the perfect blessings that are due him. That's the sweet beauty of our Savior. And my question for you is, does it cause you to fear God with a holy fear and awe? The kind of fear that makes you want to get closer to Him. It's only that, that kind of fear of the Lord that supplants all other fears and anxiety, the fears that are produced by unbelief. And this is why belief, the fruit of it, is peace and joy. Because we know God's goodness and we know it's applied to our very lives. That we're in his care. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love. We're reminded of it every week. We need more reminders, honestly. And we need your spirit to constantly be um, reminding us uh, of it. Um, because the honest truth is our own flesh and our own, and the Satan himself, the accuser, are constantly wanting to undermine your salvation in our lives. And so we ask that you would help us to combat that with the truth of your gospel, to speak that script, to do less listening and more talking to ourselves. We pray that you would help us give us the words. Actually, we pray that it would be your spirit talking to us, to our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.